If you have a Bible, open up to Acts uh, chapter 22. That's the story that we're going to be in. And uh, if you're new or newer to Genesis, what we typically do is just walk through books of the Bible. And so we've been uh, walking through the book, the story of Acts, uh, for the better part of a year. I think this is the 44th, 45th message uh, in this story of Acts, and we're going to be finishing the second week of June. Uh, But the thing that I uh, asked last week, if you weren't here, really the big question that I asked uh, and spent a majority of the time on uh, is our tagline in the series has been, there's joy in the journey. Um, And I love that phrase. Uh, That's an encouraging, it's an inspiring phrase to me. But the question that I asked everyone last week is, it sounds great, but is it even true? Is it true that there is joy in the journey? It sounds nice, but is it true? Uh, And we spent the majority of our time walking through the story in Acts chapter 21, and we're able to say there is joy in the journey. Even if the journey's hard, even if the journey is difficult, uh, even if there's persecutions and trials and pain along the way, that there is still joy in the journey. Uh, And specifically, we said there's joy in the journey when you are where God wants you to be doing what God wants you to be doing. Uh, So if you're off doing your own thing, uh, there's not going to be joy experienced there. But if you are where God wants you to be doing what God wants you to be doing, there's joy. There is joy. Even if it's hard, there is joy uh, in experiencing God in your midst. Uh, We also said that there's joy uh, as you learn to celebrate God in your life, as you learn to boast, as it were, in God and who God is and what God's doing and, and how you see God at work with you and through you, there's great joy, not from boasting in yourself, as it were, but there's great joy in boasting about this is who God is. This is what God's doing, uh, and he's doing amazing things. And then lastly, we said, yes, there's joy in the journey when you begin to help other people in your life, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, uh, begin to see who God is and what God is like. Uh, When you are able to come alongside someone else and help them see this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus has done, and this is what Jesus is like, there is great joy being used and seeing God, uh, you being part of helping others to see what God has opened your eyes to. Now, that was the question we looked at last week. Is there joy? We said yes. There is incredible joy. Uh, As we look at Acts 22, I wanted to ask, I think, a pretty challenging question, and my question I wrote down was, what do you do about people in your life who seem committed to making sure that you do not have joy in the journey. What do you do then? Uh, If there is joy in the journey, what do you do with the people who just for whatever reason just seem hell-bent on making sure that you don't have joy in the journey? Now, this actually might be a close personal friend. It might be a family member that whether intentional or unintentional, it just would seem that they make it very difficult for you. To experience joy, walk in and live in joy. Um, It might be someone who is not as close as a family or personal friend, but it's a neighbor, it's a coworker, and they just seem to make life as difficult for you as possible. Uh, These are men and women that I would just affectionately say, they're the joy suckers, uh, the joy robbers, the joy thieves, uh, as it were. Um, What do you do? Because if there is joy, and the reality is there are people who will try to steal, rob that joy from you, what is our response to those people? Clearly, you could do one of a few things. Uh, One thing is, as they seek to make your life miserable, you can make their life miserable. Uh, And as they hurt you, you could hurt them back. Uh, As they say 
cruel, harsh, rude, unlovely things towards you, you could respond in kind. Uh, That would be one option, but I would just encourage you up front, you'd be miserable uh, as you try to seek to make someone else miserable. There's no joy in that. There's absolutely no joy in returning hate with hate and hurt with hurt. Uh, So that's an option, but I'd say it's a bad option. Uh, You could simply just say, you know what? I know who this joy sucker is, this joy thief is in my life. I'm just going to ignore them. I'm just going to avoid them. I will do whatever I can to make sure if they're on my left-hand side, I'm going to be way on my right hand, over here. If they're on this side of the room, I'll just do whatever I can to make sure that I'm way over here. And I will do whatever it takes to avoid even seeing them, talking about them. Again, that's another option, but it's not a good option. Um... I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is God often puts these men and women in our life so that we can actually experience greater joy, uh, and greater joy doesn't come by avoiding or ignoring uh, these men and women in our life. It actually comes by learning how to love them. So that wouldn't be a great option of ignoring or avoiding them. Uh, I think probably the best option uh, is doing actually what Jesus told us to do. Uh, In Matthew chapter uh, 5, Jesus said this, But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, I'm going to guess that's not the first time you've ever heard that phrase, love your enemies. Uh, Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you've never even been to church and this is your first time tonight, I'm guessing you've heard that phrase before somewhere, somehow, this idea of love your uh, enemies. But at least what I've seen is familiarity does not necessarily equal applying what Jesus actually said to how we live. I think there's a lot of people who are very familiar with the idea, the concept, um, the challenge, the charge, love your enemies. But at the end of the day, I feel like most of us would say, I'd love to actually do that, but I have no idea what it actually practically looks like to actually love my enemies, to love those who hurt me, to love those who seek to steal joy from my life, love those who actually do very unlovely things. And so my question for us today is, how do we do that? How do we do what Jesus said? Because I'm convinced if we just do that, if we learn to love our enemies like Jesus tells us to, if we learn to love the men and women who just seek to steal your joy, uh, your joy is going to be greater as you learn to walk in loving those men and women in your life. Now, I'm going to guess for some people this is really timely. It was interesting to me after first, second service, how many people came up and said, you have no idea how timely this message is because I'm in the thick of it right now. I've got a friend, I've got someone in my own home, I've got a neighbor, I've got a coworker who they are just making life miserable for me. And I can't think of why, but they just are. So this might be a very timely message for you because you're in the thick of learning how to, or trying to figure out at least, how to love this person and do that well. Uh, For some of you, it might not be a timely message, but it's a necessary message because you might meet this person tomorrow. (laughs) You might meet this person tomorrow. Uh, The one who just is going to make things difficult, is going to be hurtful, hard, and just do or say unlovely things. Whether it's tomorrow, next week, next month, there's going to come a point in time where you will have someone in your path. uh, And my heart for us tonight is, how do we do it well? How can we experience even greater joy in the journey that God has for us in learning to love those men and women uh, in our life who just seek to steal the joy from us as it were? Um, As you think about this, 
Uh, I wanted to be honest with you and say, you know what, you could leave here tonight and say, that's a great message, I appreciate it, but at the end of the day, I'm still not going to love people like that. Because uh, I, I know pain is real, hurt is real, and it's just, Michael, you don't get it. It's too difficult uh, to come alongside and still love these people who have been hateful towards me, who have been spiteful, who have been cruel, who have persecuted, you name it. Uh, and I just wanted to be honest with you to say, I understand that pain is real and hurt is real, but if you choose the path of saying, I'm not going to love these men and women that God has placed in my life for whatever reason, uh, there's not going to be joy in your journey. Uh, you will be stuck being the man or the woman who is just consumed with frustration or bitterness and hurt. And there's just not joy that stems from that. So I, I wanted to invite you and encourage you uh, to really wrestle with this uh, tonight. Um, of not just hearing the words, love your enemies, but actually being able to say, I don't want to just hear this. I want to begin to apply this to how I live with the men and women who, who, who steal joy, as it were, from me. Uh, last week, we were with the Apostle Paul. He came to the city of Jerusalem, and immediately he began to, he was persecuted. Uh, in the midst of just great pain, great persecution, people were literally screaming for his death. Uh, this was a little bit of the story that we looked at last week, and this is uh, the Apostle Paul in the city of Jerusalem. As they were trying to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And as, all, as Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent that the soldiers had to lift him to their shoulders to protect him. And the crowd followed behind, shouting, kill him, kill him. Okay, it's safe to say, well, let me say this. I'm not saying this would never happen to you, but in our current context, in our current culture, uh, there's clearly places where this is happening in our world, uh, where men and women are being persecuted to the point of death because they say they're Christians. Uh, but in our current context, the chances of the likelihood that you're going to have a mob attack you and beat you uh, and then be rescued by the police and then the mob follows behind the police chanting for your death, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. But even though it might not happen anytime soon, what inspires me is as I consider the Apostle Paul's response to this mob who's chanting for his death, the way that he was able to respond to them and love them, I think to myself, goodness, if Paul can do that for an angry mob who had already beat him, and now is chanting for his death, if he can respond as he did in a loving, loving way, how much more should I be able to love those who've just maybe spiritually, emotionally, relationally hurt me, who have maybe done or said unlovely things? If Paul is able to do that for this rambunctious mob calling for his death, how much more would we be able to do that for the men and women who just have caused pain or hurt? Um, I wanted to make uh, some observations about the Apostle Paul in this story because uh, I really have two things that I wanted to share. Uh, again, if the question is, how do we love our enemies? How do we love the men and women who just seem to want to steal joy from us? Uh, these observations, I hope, will help make these uh, two main points hopefully even a little bit more clearer. Uh, so here's some observations about the Apostle Paul from this story. The first one I'd make is this. Paul really loved people. 
Like he didn't say he loved people, he really loved people. And Paul had many men and women in his life who did not love him, actually hated him to the point of death. But as I consider Paul, he loved those that did not love him because they were loved by God. Paul looked at people and knew that that man, that woman who's hurting me, who's doing unlovely things towards me, is absolutely loved by God. And because of that, I too will love them. Like when I look at the Apostle Paul, I don't think, wow, he was just really good at loving people. He was like supernaturally gifted at loving people, and he just could do it easier than most people. I think when I consider the Apostle Paul, he really loved Jesus. And because he really loved Jesus, he began loving what Jesus loves, and Jesus loves all people. So I don't think he was like this superhero who just had this unique super gift of loving people. I think he loved Jesus, and he began loving what Jesus loves. So as I look at the Apostle Paul, he really loved people. Uh, A second observation I'd make about Paul is this. He told the truth. He was the guy who just, he spoke the truth. Um, What I love about Paul, as you're going to see this in a second, is uh, he responds to the crowd. He uh, speaks to the crowd who's calling for his death. Uh, And he just tells them a story of, this is who I am, this is where I've been, this is what God has done, and this is what God has called me to do. There was no tweaking the details in the story. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever found yourself telling a story, and as you're telling someone the story, you're, you're telling the truth of the story, but you're tweaking it just a little bit to make yourself seem a little bit more favorable to the ones that are listening to the story that you're telling. You ever done that? I know I have. You've you've accomplished by telling the truth, but as you're telling the story, some of the details were just exaggerated a little bit. Some of the details were just twisted a little bit so people would look at you or think about you in a more positive way, where they'd walk away from that story and be like, wow, That's amazing that you did that, or you're like that, or you responded like that. What I love about Paul is there was no exaggeration, there was no tweaking. He just told the truth and trusted that as he told the truth, God would use the truth to bring transformation. He didn't think, I should manipulate these people so they think more positively of me. He said, I'm just going to tell the truth and trust that God would use the truth to bring some type of transformation. The third thing, observation I'd make of Paul, uh, and I think this is a challenge one, is he made opportunities. He didn't wait for opportunities. He created opportunities. He made opportunities. I know for me, and I don't know, again, if you would connect with this, but I often trip over this idea of, I'm going to wait for the perfect opportunity to come. And when the perfect opportunity comes, then I'll enter into that opportunity and I'll really love that person. I'll be kind and caring to that person. I will show them love. But I'm going to wait for the opportunity to come. And my perfect opportunity is if I've been hurt, if someone has done something unlovely, the perfect opportunity in my head is, well, when they come and say they're sorry, when they come and tell me that they're, they're really sorry for what they've done, for what they've said, for how they've treated me, and they just ask for my forgiveness, that's the perfect opportunity. And when they do that, then I'll tell them, I, it's okay, I love you, I care about you, we're good. Now, the problem with waiting for the perfect opportunity is the perfect opportunity never comes. And because that perfect opportunity that you're waiting for never comes, you never do anything. 
And so rather than loving as you've been loved, that person, you wait for an opportunity that is just not going to happen. And so what I love about the Apostle Paul is he did not wait for an opportunity to speak to these people. He pulls the Roman guard aside and says, before you bring me into uh, the Roman uh, barracks here, the prison, uh, can I please speak to the crowd? He says this in Acts 21, verse 39, please let me talk to these people. And by the way, these people are the same people who are just saying, kill him, kill him. So rather than Paul saying, get me out of here, I don't want anything to do with these crazy, psychotic men and women who want me dead, he says to the Roman official, please let me talk to these people. Notice, it wasn't the Roman officer saying, hey, before we bring you into prison, is there anything that you would like to say to these people? Because I'll set up a nice podium for you, and if you would like to address these people who just beat you and who are chanting for your death, would you like to say anything? That didn't happen. But what Paul did is he made an opportunity. Can I please talk to these people? Uh, He loved people, he told the truth, and he made opportunities. And as I consider Paul, he had a really, really hard road, but the journey that he traveled was marked by joy because of his ability to love people, his ability to speak the truth, and his ability to create an opportunity when there might not have been an opportunity. Uh, So tonight, that's observations, backgrounds for really the two things that I wanted to share with you, and hopefully these will be helpful and practical of how do we actually do it? How do we love people who do unlovely things? How do we love people who just hurt us? How do we do that? Now, as you look at Paul in this example of this story, he says, can I please talk to these people? If this was you and you could insert yourself as best as you can into this situation, people are chanting for you to die. What would you actually want to say to these people? Remember, you've already been beaten and now the mob is calling for your death. What would you actually want to say to these people? I'm going to guess that most people would want to give them a piece of their mind and let them know exactly what they're thinking. But what I love about what Paul does, he doesn't give them a piece of his mind. He gives them a piece of his heart. And in doing so, he actually allows these people to see the heart of God. The first thing that I wanted us all to catch in this story of how do we love those who do unlovely towards us is help people see God's great love for them. And just so there's no confusion, that sentence does not say, help people see your great love for them. The the goal is not like to get them thinking of you, wow, you are such a loving person. You are such a gracious person. You are such a kind, forgiving person. The goal, the aim in Helping people uh, and loving people is you want them to see, we need them to see how great God's love for them is. This is uh, Acts uh, chapter 22. I'm just going to read a few verses uh, to help explain where this point comes from. So kind of as you're reading, as I'm reading this, listen for the question of how did Paul actually help these men and women see God's great love for them in these few verses? Brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. 
When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Uh, Their own language that Paul, he was uh, familiar with many dialects, but he was speaking Aramaic to this this crowd of uh, men men and women who were Jewish. Verse 3, then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarshish, a city in Sicilia, and and I was brought up... um, brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamil. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything that I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way. The way was what they called early Christians. Hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify, uh, this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus authorizing me to bring Christians from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. Just a few verses, uh, but this is the initial thing that Paul tells this crowd who has now been silenced. Uh, This is what he shares with them. So my question is, how does Paul actually help these crowds see the love, God's great love, for them. I'll give you one. He talked to them. (laughs) He talked to them. Now, I realize that might not seem like much, but he didn't have to. He could have ignored, he could have avoided, uh, but he chose to talk to them. The same crowd that beat him, the same crowd that's chanting for his death, Paul stopped and demonstrated God's love for them by actually engaging them, by loving them. Paul never gave up on trying to reach his fellow Jews, even though his fellow Jews were filled with hatred towards him. It's going to be really hard for the men and women who do hard, hurtful, cruel, unlovely things towards you to see a demonstration of God's great love for them if you don't talk to them. I know that seems like a really obvious thing, But when we get hurt, we shut down and we ignore and we avoid. I'm not going to talk to that person. Why would I talk to that person? Every time I talk to that person, they're mean, they're rude, they're cruel. I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. But Paul demonstrated God's love for them and then he talked to them. I'd give you a second reason of how he demonstrated God's great love for them is he respected them. And I don't know how hard that was, but how do you respect a crowd of men and women who've already beaten you and are calling, chanting, crying for your death. And if you didn't catch it, I read it slowly in the beginning. Verse one, brothers and esteemed fathers. Not only did he address them in their native language to make a a bridge, a connection as it were, he addressed them in language of family, my brothers and my fathers, my esteemed fathers. Like, isn't there something in you that you're like, yeah, I probably wouldn't have said that. I probably would have let some other words fly out of my mouth to let these people actually know what they've done uh, was wrong, was hurtful, all of those things. But Paul actually respected them in how he addressed them. And a third thing, I don't know if you picked up on this one. They saw God's great love for them when Paul chose to believe the best in them. Paul chose to believe the best in this crowd that had beat him and was crying for his death. Let me read verse 3 again. 
I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. Did you catch that? Paul made a connection here and said, I remember what it was like when I was imprisoning, chasing, hounding people to the point of death. And I did it because I thought that was somehow honoring to God. So I see what you're doing to me is you're trying to honor God. He chose to believe the absolute best that I remember what it was like and I see what you're doing. You think it's honoring to God. And even though that's really messed up and you're wrong, I see that what you're doing, you think you're doing the right thing. I think this is one of the hardest things for me. I think it's one of the hardest things for all of us is choosing to believe the best in those who've hurt us choosing to believe the best in those who do unlovely towards us. And I wrote this question down of, why is it easier to believe the worst in people rather than choosing to believe the best in them? Like, why is it easier just to gravitate towards just believing the absolute worst about someone, that their motives in doing what they did were just evil towards you? Why do we naturally gravitate towards just believing the worst? And at least the answer that I wrote down is, if I believe the worst in someone, then I'm off the hook for actually loving them. Because why would I love someone who is just bent on being cruel because they hate you? So if I believe the worst, it almost gives me an out. It gives me a reason or an excuse not to be loving towards them. Or that's how I can justify it in my head. But if I actually choose to believe the best in that person, well, then you know what? I I can't be unlovely towards them. If I choose to believe the best about that person who's doing hurt, hard, hurtful, unlovely things, if I'm choosing to believe the best, then I have to respond in kind, to be loving and caring and compassionate towards that person. Paul, he talked to them, he respected them, and he chose to believe the best in them. Of all the ways that Paul could have responded to the crowds that were chanting for his death, he helped people see the love of God by being loving towards them. I wanted to uh, share with you a story tonight uh, about uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, uh, my wife and I spent the better part of a summer uh, in the Congo. Uh, and we went there just to do some missions work. Uh, specifically, I was just doing some different teaching in some of the seminaries and different churches in the area. And uh, it was one of the most powerful experiences that we got to have together uh, of just seeing uh, some of the most amazing, phenomenal people that I've ever met in my life. Some of the people who have absolutely nothing in their life, uh, but yet they had the the deepest seated joy in their life. They had nothing, but yet they were incredibly generous. Uh, And one of the individuals that um, I've met uh, in my travels uh, to the Congo, his name was Mena Joel. And Mena Joel was, uh, was a man who, uh, at the time, I thought he was an old guy because uh, he was in his 40s and I was in my early 30s. I just figured if you're in your 40s, you're like, wow, you're really old. And now I'm in my 40s, I'm like, wow, I'm him. And so I met this man, Mena Joel, and he was from India. And I had the opportunity uh, just to sit down with him and, uh, as I always like to do, just ask people questions about their story and their testimony. And... Um, I had never met someone like this. Like, I had met a lot of people who said, I know that God wants me to love those who've hurt me and love those who've done unlovely, uh, but I had never met someone who actually 
was able to do that in uh, the way that this man did. Um, I just want to read to you from my journal. I'll just read it as it is. Uh, Today, uh, I was able to speak with Men and Joel, and he shared his testimony. And it was an incredible story of forgiveness and love. While he was on a scooter uh, with his wife and two kids, a drunk driver hit him head on, on purpose, in order to rob them. And he told me that this was the normal thing that happened uh, in India, uh, in the city, is the primary means of transportation was either riding a bicycle or riding a scooter. And so it was the norm you would see families, uh, two, three kids, all piled onto this scooter. Uh, they didn't have car seats, uh, and piled on, and uh, thieves, robbers would knock people off of their, uh, their, tra- their bicycle or their scooter in order to grab and run uh, with their things. Uh, So while he was on his scooter with his wife and his two kids, a drunk driver hit him head on on purpose in order to rob them. And what happened, though, was his wife and one of his children, a 12-month-old, they were thrown into the water below because where they got struck uh, was right at the point of a bridge. Uh, So uh, wife and child, 12-month-old, were thrown into the water. His wife did not know how to swim, and neither, neither did Menajol. Menajol stood by and he watched his wife and his child drown with no one there to help. And he said that it took a couple of minutes and his wife was trying hard to hold the baby above the water. But after a few moments, a few minutes of struggling, they both died right there in front of him. And I don't know why I wrote this detail down, but he shared this story and I was in tears. And the story went on. Three months later, while in court, Menajol gave his testimony in front of the court and in front of the judge. And he looked to the man who killed his wife and, and child and told him, I'm a man who follows Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has told me to love you and to forgive you. So I want you to know that I love you and I forgive you for what you have done. And then, as if that wasn't enough... He then looked to the judge and said, I have forgiven this man of his crime against me, and I humbly ask you, judge, that you also would forgive him as well. And I didn't write these details down, but I remember talking to Menajol about this, and he told me uh, that the judge was furious. This is a a Hindu culture, and uh, really the sentence for these men who had committed two murders uh, would that they would also be put to death. Uh, and so the judge was so offended uh, by Menajol of what he had done that he had forgiven uh, these two men publicly and then asked publicly for the judge to do the same. It put the judge in a very awkward position. He was very offended, culturally speaking, by what Menajol uh, had done. And Menajol told me that he dismissed the court for a couple hours but came back a few hours later uh, and after three hours of processing, uh, the judge came back and looked at the men, and, they part- and the judge pardoned these men of his crime and set them free. And I remember Menajol telling me, uh, the judge came out and looked at Menajol and said, I've never seen anything close to what you've done for these men. And I can't think of one reason, if you have chosen to love them and to forgive them and have asked for their release... I can't think of one reason why I would keep these men if you, have, if you are desirous that they would be set free. 
And so he set them free. That was 12 years ago. And I was so taken, as I'm in tears as I am now, I was so taken by that story because as he told me that story, he smiled. He had such joy. He wasn't a man just filled with anger and bitterness uh, and hatred towards those who had done a horrific, absolutely horrific thing to him and to his family. And one of the things that I learned from Menajol in that example uh, is that if I choose not to love those who have done love, unlovely things towards me, if I choose not to love those who have hurt me, I'm actually the one that is going to be enchained. I'm the one that's going to be in bondage, as it were, to my hatred, to my bitterness, and to my hurt, and to my pain. But when he chose to love, when he chose to forgive, he was set free. And I asked Menajol, I said, what happened after court was out? Like, did they come? Did, did they say thank you? Did these guys come up to you and say, we're sorry, thank you for being gracious? And he said, they didn't even look at me. They walked right out of the courtroom, and I've never seen these men since. And I remember when he told me that, um, and I said, obviously, that had to be hard. And he said, honestly, it wasn't that hard because I didn't do that necessarily for them. I forgave them, and I chose to love them because that's what Jesus has done for me. And I just remember him telling me the story of Michael if you really understand and believe what we have done before God, then forgiving those who have done horrific towards us, uh, in light of what God has forgiven us of, it's not as hard as you actually think. And I wanted us to at least consider that and wrestle with that, that in view of my indifference towards God, in view of my pride towards God, my arrogance towards God, an attitude that says, I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it, regardless of I know that's what you want me to do, but I'll do my own thing. And God's response to me time and time and time and time again is, I still love you and I forgive you. How could I ever look at someone in my life who has hurt me, who has done unlovely towards me and say, I do not forgive you. I do not love you. I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that that's easy. But what I am suggesting is if you know Jesus and have received the love that Jesus has for you, then flowing from him through you to them will be love and grace and forgiveness. And so our role, our job as Christians is just to continually position ourselves in places where we can just continually receive the great love that God has for us so that flowing through us is not trying to get people to love us more but we could be demonstrations of God's great love for them in the way that we are lovely towards them. Uh, very quickly, the second thing that I wanted to share with you and what I've learned from Acts 22 is we help people see God's great love for them, but secondly, we help people see the power of God through your transformed life. And I'm not going to get into all of the, the notes that I had written down, but I just wanted to encourage you uh, that your transformed life in the lives of people around you will be used by God to speak volumes to them. This is uh, a bit of the story in Acts 22, starting at verse 6. Paul has just told them, this is who I am, this is where I've been. Um, and in verse 6, he says this, 
As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying uh, to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. And the rest of, really not just Acts 22, but the rest of Paul's story is Jesus changed this man's life. He was literally on the road walking to, from Damascus to Jerusalem to round up Christians to persecute and imprison them. But Jesus intervened and grabbed hold of him. And he was never the same. He was never the same man. The one who was the greatest persecutor of the church became the greatest champion uh, for the cause of Christ. And the rest of Acts 22, Paul just walks through what God had done in his life and the things that he had seen, as it were, along the way. And I wanted to encourage you tonight that one of the most powerful ways that you and I can love unlovely people who do unlovely things towards us is allow them to see what Jesus has actually done in your life. The question is, why would a transformed life actually communicate love towards those who do unlovely things towards us? And I just simply wrote down, if my life has not been transformed by the power of God, then I will return hate for hate and hurt for hurt. But if Jesus is transforming me, if Jesus is just pouring out continually grace and love and kindness, and my life is being changed by that, then when someone does hate, when someone does hurt, I don't respond with hate with hate and hurt with hurt. I respond in love. Why? Because I'm not the same guy anymore. I remember being the guy who was just filled with anger and rage. I remember being the guy that when someone hurt me, I wanted to hurt them. And I don't mean like a physical sometimes, but generally, I just wanted to make their life miserable. But Jesus has changed my heart towards people because he's changing my heart towards him. And I don't want you to ever underestimate the power of your transformed life will speak volumes of God's power and God's great love in that individual's life. The last question I would give you is simply this. When you get hurt, what do those who've hurt you see in you? When you get hurt, what do they see? Do they see one who's been hurt? Do they see one who's just carrying bags of bitterness, anger, frustration? Or do, when, when they see that you are hurt, do they see, wow, that person is still loving me. That person is still kind and caring and compassionate towards me. Because that's what the power of a transformed life does in loving those who do unlovely things. Now, I wish I could tell you that there was a really happy end to this story for Paul. I really wish I could tell you that everyone in the crowd repented and said, Paul, we're sorry. Uh, We want to follow Jesus like you. Thank you for being a great example to us. I wish I could tell you that that's how his story ends, and I wish I could tell you that every time you love someone who does unlovely towards you, they are going to love God and they're going to love you. But More often than not, they won't. This is how the story ended for Paul. 
Uh, he's telling the people uh, in this crowd what God has told him to do. And he says this, but the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And the crowd listened until Paul said that word. They couldn't believe that a man who just said he was Jewish wanted to enter, uh, wanted to uh, be in relationship with Gentiles. The crowd listened until Paul said that word. Then they all began to shout, away with such a fellow, he isn't fit to live. I wish I could tell you that they didn't say that, but they did say that. His best attempts to love them fell on hearts that were still hard. But what I think is, in many ways, in many respects, most challenging about this is Paul knew that they would not respond in a loving way towards him, but he still chose to love them. Because every city that Paul went to, story after story, town after town, he loved them, but they mocked, they rejected, they persecuted. And Paul knew that these crowd of people uh, would continue in their path, in their way, but it did not stop him from actually still seeking to love him. And so a final question for you. If you know that those who hurt you are still going to continue to hurt you, even if you still choose to love them, choose to be gracious to them, choose to be compassionate, if you know that they'll still return uh, love or they'll return hate towards your love, will you still love them? This is the challenge. This is... This is the challenge of being a follower of Christ because he says you love people regardless of what people do. Why? Because people matter to God. Again, not suggesting this is easy, but will the knowledge that people that are hurting you, if you continue to love them, but yet they're going to continue to hurt them, will that stop you from loving them? And my heart for, for me, my prayer for me, my heart and my prayer for all of us would simply be this, is that our willingness and ability to love people will not be driven by people's ability or willingness to receive the love that we have to give them. We are going to love people because they are loved by God. And we're going to love people because God has loved us. Paul had already written the letter of Romans. At this point in Paul's life, he's got about three to five years before he's beheaded in prison. What's really interesting in the story of Acts is Paul goes into prison. He doesn't come out. He spends the next three to five years of his life in prison waiting for his own death. But Paul had written the letter of Romans, and he says this in Romans, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, to, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And I love that Paul not only wrote that, but he lived that. And Acts 22, to me, is yet another example of someone who knew what God wanted him to do and actually did what God wanted him to do. And because he did that, there was greater joy in the journey. And I know this is hard for you to hear, for me to even say, love those who do unlovely towards you. But if you want to experience increasing joy in your journey, this is where it's at. Loving those who do unlovely towards you, as you do that, the greater you love, the greater joy you and I will experience in our journey.